Hello and welcome to FuturePod. I'm Peter Hayward. FuturePod gathers voices from the international field of futures and foresight. Through a series of interviews, the founders of the field and the emerging leaders share their stories, tools and experiences. Please visit futurepod.org for further information about this podcast series. Today, we are continuing the re-interview of Richard Slaughter that we started in podcast 113. In that conversation, Richard explains what he believes are the skewed narratives that are preventing us taking effective action against the emergencies that we all face. Welcome back to FuturePod, Richard. Thanks, Peter. Good to be here. We're back today to discuss your latest book, which is called Deleting Dystopia, Reasserting Human Priorities in the Age of Surveillance Capitalism. So, Richard, why is it called that? Yeah, just a short subtitle to everyone's ears. Thanks for organising the second chat because this has been a long-standing project for me beginning way back in 2017 and it took the form of some um, academic articles. Fortunately, it was possible to, to take some of that material, completely reshape it, extend it, grow it and produce something quite different, which is uh, deleting dystopia. It was originally called Decoding the Matrix. It was felt that was just a bit too arty-farty and abstract. And, you know, what do you mean sort of thing? It wasn't clear. So I was, it was strongly suggested to me that I think of another title. And it came up with uh, Deleting Dystopia and the second bit about reasserting human priorities because, in a sense, that is really the motive power behind the whole project over these recent years. Two assumptions important to make at the outset about technology um, that sort of become fairly clear to me. Remember back at Lancaster years ago, uh, I did some courses on um, science, technology and society. So I've never seen science and technology just as uh, material stuff. It's always had to add a social context. And so two things. One is that the way that tech is used seems to me to be so thoroughly ambiguous. Everyone knows that we tend to think technology can solve problems. But what we found really post-war, I think, is that when these powerful, more powerful forms of technology are rushed into premature use, before anyone's really sorted out what the heck's going on, we sort of tend to keep getting into the same kind of trouble. We find side effects cropping up, consequences no one had ever thought of. So the idea that technology is ambiguous and it's rushed into premature use is not exactly widespread. The thing to remember about about science and technology and technical systems, the whole infrastructure, is that they're not merely physical. To get your head around them, you have to really understand where they came from, why they were produced, what were the social, economic, cultural, other interests of the, uh, of the promoters of a particular technology and tell the story. So the story of how a technology comes into being and is used is every part as important and necessary to understand as how do we use the final product. And what we've all done and been encouraged to do after over, de- over decades is to just uh, pick up the shiny new product and say, hey, this looks great, let's use that. And this is partly why I think uh, we see people addicted, for example, to phones. Someone said to me the other day, you know, I said, I went to some place or other, he said, I looked around and said, everyone was looking down at their phones. And, you know, that's kind of accepted now. That's just the way it is when you go on a train or on a bus or on a sidewalk, wherever you are, where kids are around, everyone's looking at their phones. Did anyone ever think of this at the outset? Not at all. So 
the whole point about deleting dystopia is that what we seem to have created unthinkingly or had created for us, which is probably another way of putting it, a dangerously degraded technical system going by the collective name of the internet or that goes into it. Not to say that uh, the internet all these communications options are not useful. Of course they are. We all use them. But at the same time, they carry with, they drag with them some extremely difficult and dangerous possibilities. So we want to use, use technology for what it can do to try and minimize the harm that it creates. At the moment, there's no doubt in my mind, and many other people whose work I've looked at carefully and in some detail, that we're headed for a world dominated by high-tech owned by two powerful groups. One is international, transnational corporations, and the other is authoritarian so uh, political regimes. If these are driving forces leading to the future, then it is distinctly dystopian. Yeah, that sounds fairly ominous if you put it that way. So what are some of the central issues you think? Well, I'll just mention four since this is a brief recording, has to be. But obviously, if one is dealing with this in depth, there are, there are dozens of them. But the first one I'd name is, is the loss of privacy. Some brave folk in the good US of A have already said, well, look, forget privacy. It's already gone. But many people will kind of dig their heels in at this point and say, well, hang on, mate. You know, no one agreed to this. So how, how can it be gone if, if we never saw it going? It's suddenly, this is suddenly um, happening. It's unacceptable. Who is it that controls our private data? In most cases, it's not us. It is sold, as you know, to the highest bidder for all kinds of uses, um, particularly advertising. And, you know, I've always found it really odd that the, the dominant economic force in the Internet is something as debased as advertising. Mm. Goodness sake, what a principle to, to drive into the heart of any civilization selling stuff. It's important in a, in a minor way in all cultures, but not not that important. The, the loss of private data and the private privacy, the sense that everywhere you go, you're being tracked, monitored, facial recognition coming in in places like schools, places, places like uh, local councils that you'd never expected. So at the forerunner of everyone being parsed and tracked and recorded, and no one's agreed to this. So it, it is a real issue. A second issue, which is very much connected with that, is the the real net of harms occurring to young people, particularly young people who are who become addicted to uh, to screens and the online apps that um, exploit them. There are multiple sources of evidence here, and there's not time to discuss them. But I'll mention that one of the most recent that came up a couple of weeks ago in the uh, congressional hearings in Washington, when the uh, the whistleblower, very valuable operation that's turned up and described in detail and with substantial evidence how young women have be, become sucked into the, the whole issue of being dissatisfied with their own body, their own body image, and starting to look innocently enough at topics, but then as they do, being directed further down this rabbit hole to the point where a large number of young women have actually been pointed in a direction that no parent wants to see. They become withdrawal, they stop eating, and leads to an explosion of anorexia. Well, who would have thought 
you know, some years ago that that would be a result of IT. A third one is that with this drift towards uh, universal surveillance, we're moving into or already in, according to some people, something which you might actually call permanent cyber war, cyber aggression. Now, that sounds like a bit extreme because we're not very conscious of that. But recently there was a TV news clip that I recall of one of the um, high-ups in Canberra in the, in the strategy and security area, and he was making a very simple point. He said, if you have a mobile phone, you're already on the battlefield. Mm. I thought that was really quite shocking because mobile phones haven't been sold as weapons or as vulnerabilities. They've been sold as providing connectivity and services. So there's something going on here that we need to understand. Fourthly, in terms of just a few central issues, there's this huge power imbalance between the owners of the technology and those of us that use it. That includes governments and civil society. Now, again, to cut to an example, there recently has been a project has reached fruition called the Pegasus Project, Hmm where investigators, social entities looking at what's happening, civil, civil society entities looking at what's happening, really started to do their research around how it was that some well-placed, highly placed individuals around the world had managed to actually get into people's iPhones undetected and use them to monitor the victims over a period of time. I'm not going to name names here, but if you anyone's interested in finding out the names and who did what to who, uh, they've only got to Google, or I should say search, <laughs> the Pegasus Project, so we're all involved. And there, there are so many examples of this really military-grade software, which I think comes from Israel, being sold to countries for strategic purposes and then used by highly placed people uh, for their own benefit. So that rather makes the point, you know, about already being on the battlefield. Yeah, there's a. it's been interesting, Richard, because, you know, we've been playing with notions of encryption and that kind of thing, and it's been interesting when you start hearing the law enforcement agencies saying that if you are using encrypted email, for example, perhaps you are hiding something. Well, that's certainly the way things seem to be going. Certainly one thing that I'm not sure everyone quite realizes yet is how this uh, always on, always everywhere internet has been an absolute boon to criminal criminal fraternities all over the world. Hmm. So how does your book contribute to, apart from just raising these issues, how does your book actually contribute to the issue of resolving some of them? Well, the first thing to say about this is that it is actually the main focus of the book. The last thing I wanted to do was just rave on about problems. So the whole thing is really about, okay, so here's where we are. What do we do about it? And I have to say that there is no quick fix in sight. This is going to take work, organization, commitment, time, money, effort over an extended period. It took us 20 or 30 years to get here. It'll probably take us at least that to get out. So we're not talking short-term easy stuff. However... The point of the book is to clarify really where some of those solutions are beginning to arise. So some of them are sort of about our own 
orientation, our own thinking, our own psychology. And one is to begin to find our bearings amongst the, the torrent of change. It's very difficult when you are in the middle of a, a turbulent river or stream to sort of think about how it ever got started. However, uh, we do need to know how we got here in the first place. And secondly, we'd be able, we need to be able to name and be clear about, provide language around our predicament. What is it? Where did it start? Who's responsible? Who's responsible for it? What can we call it? One of the main contributors here, a writer called Shoshana Zuboff, and her book on the age of surveillance capitalism. And I have huge admiration for this person because she took seven years out of her schedule to actually go back to the very beginnings of the internet oligarchs and look at exactly what happened, how the patents were taken out, what decisions were made, and where that led. And in doing that, I think she pulled aside a kind of invisible curtain that had affected everyone's vision and actually showed precisely where and when decisions were made to turn this technical capability against large numbers of people for the benefit of the organizations. Same thing's going on now, as we heard just a couple of weeks ago in that congressional testimony. Once we know who's responsible, then we can start to do something about it. And one of the obvious things that we can do is to remind the currently rich and powerful that, hmm, look over your shoulder, people, because do you actually have a social license for what you're doing? And the answer is no, they don't. They just assume that they could go for gold, go for the information, go for capturing larger and larger audiences, addicting people to things that maybe required more thought, and so on. So once that starts to happen, it begins to uh, eat away at the assumed legitimacy of the internet oligarchs and those who support them. So that's one part of this interwoven process. Now, the other part, besides withdrawing that social license, the other really important part is to really think carefully about the design and the creation of alternatives that are designed by and for civil society. And the really good news there is that there's an enormous amount being happening. Hmm. We're going to start looking around at some of the things that are emerging. Even some of the internet, early internet um, pioneers themselves have had a hand in this. And look at there, there is so much going on. The important thing to me about a lot of these civil society alternatives is that they take a really very different view about values and purpose. Their values aren't about using money to make money. Capitalism just wants more capital. But people living ordinary lives, capital plays a part, but they have a vast range of other interests. So if we start drawing on different values, one of the reliable sources is that declaration by the UN post-World War II, the Declaration of Human Rights. If you look at that in terms of what the oligarchs do, they actually abrogate certain of those rights, the right to privacy, the right to security, and so forth. So what is, what is really encouraging about some of the alternatives that are being created 
is that they try to articulate values that include things like transparency, safety, respect, tolerance, and so on. What this means is that out of this different way of looking at things, clearly what emerges are different, and I would argue much better choices. Hmm. And what do you think become the next steps? Well, there also needs to be a response from the the authorities, from the civil society authorities, from governments, councils, administrations at every level. And this is some this is a battle that futures and foresight people have been fighting forever. But hmm. I think in this in this time of trouble and upset and and hazard and uh, existential risk, I don't think it's an exaggeration anymore to say, look, let's let's be honest with each other. We've gone a long way down some roads that we should have thought more carefully about. The futures that we're looking at now are actively pretty dangerous. They're pretty dicey. We know why. We know that the impacts of human civilization, the numbers, the quantities, the range of impacts, exponential growth in a, in a finite system, all that has caused some of the, the actual regulatory mechanisms of the planet to begin to shift to compensate for the tremendous load that's been put on the world, the world system in so many ways. We know that's happening. So there's the natural world part, there's the culture part, there's the natural processes part, wildlife, air, water, sea, land use, etc. I think what this amounts to is that instead of seeing foresight as a kind of add-on that you toss to the to the greenies and progressives, it actually needs to come right back to where a very few countries have had the wisdom to place it, which is at a national and regional and local level, all of them. So what we should argue for, I think, is national foresight commissions for each country so that this capacity to think ahead and not have to go down every single path and find out how dangerous it is could be put into place as a the kind of necessary element of governance in general. Secondly, and this again is good news here, this is already happening, we do need a whole raft of legislation to rein in the the oligarchs. And again, that's starting to happen around privacy, around uh, permission to use personal information. One of the key things, which is really current in Australia now as well as elsewhere, is to really bite the bullet and make it clear that commercial platforms are indeed publishers. The fact they've got away with not being seen like that for so long is just due to the way that things were initially framed in the US. And very, very unfortunately, I don't enjoy saying this, but the US has been just so backward and and, and hopeless at um, really taking a careful, critical look at the capacities that grew right there in the middle of it. Another aspect is uh, really working on the tremendous um, contrast in wealth and making sure that the the rich and the super-rich, including the oligarchs themselves, pay their contributions. One of the things that that we've known for years is that uh, tax rates are... I've been regressive, 
for, for so many years in so many places. And also that the, the super rich have a whole raft of quasi-professionals helping them to hide their resources, that vast amounts of money in offshore accounts and um, places where people thrive. I lived in one for some years in Bermuda. There are many others where money is just simply put offshore, not taxed. And that resource, this is the time when that kind of resource is needed. Along with all this is a sort of psychological shift, which is once you once you open to the fact that, yes, really, sorry to say it, but the future is actually dangerous, I think we need to really be strongly clear that it, it doesn't have to be dystopian. Just because a trend heads in a direction that looks very dangerous and unhelpful doesn't mean anyone's got to go there. It's the first step, in fact, in making sure that you start assembling the resources, the thinking, the materials, the organization to not venture into dystopia. We're not doing a great job of recognizing that. But I think if we did, if we, if we acknowledged the future's dangerous, we acknowledged that it looks dystopian, the next thing is to do something about that. And what that means in IT terms, and this is something that um, Ronald Divart has made incredibly clear in his excellent book, is to redesign systems from the ground up. He uses the term reset, and reset is, uh, there are reset entities in, in Australia and I'm sure in other countries as well, who actually are taking, if you, if you search the term reset, you people will find there are several of them around the world, quite a few progressive suggestions come from them. So if you follow that line, then the, the way the IT systems of the world have developed is lopsided, pushed, framed, designed, and used and abused by powerful entities that are not interested in us, not interested in human well-being. They can be designed, redesigned from the ground up in a, in a completely different way. Mm. You always talk about signs of hope and you clearly want to finish on the fact that it is possible that a dystopian future can be prevented. Absolutely. I think there's a lot of good news here. Part of it is that I think most people have had now some sort of actual real experience of the growing costs of a rogue IT sector. There have been so many scams, so many people have been hurt, so many Young people are affected. Uh, it has really sort of swept across the, the human uh, world in, in ways that, that um, have led to, as I said, a huge, huge increase in many different kinds of crime, all sorts of dysfunctions and difficulties. And I think just looking at individual cases, people might feel you know, pretty hopeless. But when you see the patterns that emerge from that, I think it's possible to direct that away from oh, how terrible things are and away from being passive about it and suffering towards some sense of being determined either to take action or to support action that uh, other players are taking. And the really good news here is that there are so many more informed actors in this space. Uh, in the back of the book, we uh, included... Uh, a list of useful addresses, and there are probably about barely two dozen of them there. 
it's, that's just a tiny fragment of what's out there. As soon as you start looking, you find there's a huge number of entities, some of them government, many of them civil society. There's the reset movement that I mentioned uh, in, in Australia. We've got the Australia Institute. It has a, an institute for the Centre of Responsible Technology. Oxford has the Oxford Internet Institute, and so it goes. Lots of them. And finally, the other, the other piece of really good news, and I, I really feel that it, this is quite, quite new. The EEC, the Economic Community of Europe, um, started to take action a few years ago. There was the general data protect, protection legis- legislation, which you know, was a first step, not perfect. Various other initiatives by Germany, France, the UK. But in this last year, in 2021, there's a growing set of actual legislative changes that have occurred in many places, including Australia, to confront the oligarchs and crack down on their earlier practices. And part of that is also strengthening national defense against constant cyber attack. Uh, The more you find out about that, the more pervasive it seems. And governments also have got their own sources of information and support. So you've got things in action being tried out, being suggested, small scale could be grown. You've got informed, informed actors, people who understand the system, what's going on, how it works, how it needs to change. And you've got legislation beginning to flow from the people that matter, the, the national government governments. And if you put all those things together, uh, you can see that we're right at the point where a really deep-lying shift is beginning to occur away from uncritical acceptance of all the glitzy goodies that flow out of the production chain belonging to the oligarchs and the slow but steady growing emergence of all sorts of ways of actually handling that. And frankly, I think that those are the seeds of futures beyond dystopia, hence deleting dystopia, mm-hmm. asserting those human priorities is really the central job. You also, I think, made the decision to, to not lock the book behind a publisher. Do you want to talk about how people can get access to deleting dystopia? Yes, it's been my pleasure to work with a, a, a terrific team at the University of Southern Queensland, and they have... Um, an open access unit there. And uh, we've been able to work with that unit and produce a book which can be downloaded directly from USQ Open Access or from my own site, Foresight International. It's, it's free. And the whole point of that was, what was the criteria of success here? Was it to make a few bucks? Well, hardly. The criteria of success is, Get this book into as many hands as you can. The number of people reading it, thinking about it, being inspired to do their bit, for me that was the the thing that really made this work. So I hope lots of people will read it. I hope they'll criticise it, but also I hope they'll use it and help, um, help us all sort of really complete that shift out of the downward spiral uh, to aspire to something far better than what will happen if we just passively ride with this. Mm, thanks, Richard. Look, on behalf of the FuturePod community, th- on, thanks thanks for caring 
Thanks for doing the work. Uh, thanks for uh, writing the book. Uh, and thanks, too, for taking some time out to talk to the community. My pleasure, Peter. Thanks to you as well. This has been another production from FuturePod. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support FuturePod, go to the Patreon link on our website. Thank you for listening. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. This is Peter Hayward saying goodbye for now.